After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. 
During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honour because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Some of you may know that when our twins were born about two years ago, um, we felt like our life was shattered in a lot of ways. Um, Not because of the twins. We love the twins. They're beautiful. But just because everything became infinitely more difficult and... And if I'm being honest, I think we still feel like we're picking up the pieces, like life is um, just basically at its, at its most difficult in so many ways. And I, I, I only share this because the story of Leah has spoken volumes to my soul this week, and I just want to pray that God might speak to you of the love of God as he has to me. So can I pray before we begin? Father, you say in the Psalms that your love is better than life, and it's true. The love that we find in Jesus is enough for every single one of us in every single moment of our lives. So, God, please, we pray that you might make that clear to us tonight. Amen. Story of Leah. When we look at Leah, we see a woman who is lonely loveless, longing for more, broken, weary, isolated, unlovable. Have you ever felt any of those things? Maybe you're in a season right now where those things define your life. I'm not sure. Maybe you've had a season like that in the past. Maybe you'll have one in the future. I'm certain that at some point it might hit you. There are wounds we bear that go deeper than our flesh There are pains we feel that really aren't seen, they're not visible, and yet there's no medical treatment that can take them away. There are burdens that we carry, unseen burdens that threaten to crush us. They say be kind to anyone you meet along the street because you don't know what kind of burdens they're carrying, and it's true. Now, these unseen wounds of the heart, they have been a part of the human condition since the very beginning. We live in a broken world that comes with all of its burdens and pains and difficulties, and we know that even within ourselves, we are fractured and broken within our sinfulness, and so that comes with pain. It comes with 
baggage. And yet it seems that in our modern moment, our cultural moment today, that that kind of pain feels a little bit more acute. It's been said that the next public health epidemic of the 21st century is loneliness. The UK has appointed to their ministerial team a minister for loneliness because they've seen something so incredibly important in the future of their country, and they've given it power. The the stats are that this, this phenomenon is increasing, and interestingly enough, the demographics that are most at risk of acute loneliness are firstly the 18 to 24-year-olds. Some of you sitting here today are like, of course, I know that I'm 18 to 24 and I feel it in my soul. But for me, that was surprising because that demographic to me feels like they're connected, like they've got friendship and relationships. And yet, despite appearances, there seems to be something under the surface there. Perhaps less surprising, but no more worrying, is that the next demographic most at risk is the 65 to 74-year-olds those who are retiring and trying to find life on the other side of work. The numbers seem to drop from 74 onwards, but that's more likely due to people dying in their old age rather than it is to a lack of loneliness in that that demographic. It's, It's inherently a part of our society. There's evidence of 26% increased likeliness of mortality due to acute loneliness. Doesn't that seem absurd? Of course, we can make sense of the mental side of things, right? Like if you're experiencing this sense of isolation and difficulty with no one to support you, of course you would expect that mental health might get more difficult. So there's a clear link between depression but equally anxiety that comes out of loneliness. But just as clear as the mental link is a physical link, that there are, there are physical aspects and degradation of our physical health that's well-established that comes with our loneliness. And you can kind of see why, right? To be bearing the weight of the metaphorical world upon your shoulders, largely because you feel these things, but to then have no one to walk with, no one who you can be honest with, no one who can help shoulder that burden, it's a vicious cycle as it contributes to the pain again and again and again. Now, if any of this resonates with you, know this, God sees you. God knows what you're going through, and God loves you. I don't say that as an empty platitude, you know, sometimes when you're going through some things, someone will say to you, oh, don't worry, the Lord will never leave you or forsake you, and you just kind of shake them, you don't get it, right? I don't say it like that. And I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting as I began this sermon that, you know, I've been feeling loneliness is the inherent thing, but rather this sense of weariness and brokenness. And my experience this week and the past few years is that In the place of brokenness, God sees you, God knows you, and God loves you. So let's crack into Genesis 29. You got Bibles open? The sound of Bible pages flicking, it's the greatest sound on earth. Let's get there. Genesis 29, if you've got a phone, we still love you. That's okay too. A little bit of context, if you've been with us through this series, Genesis 12 to 50, we have prior to this seen the world start to unravel with sin. We're looking for an answer. We're looking for a hope, but the world just keeps getting worse until Genesis 12, God speaks to a man named Abraham. He offers promises that are incredible, descendants like the stars in heaven, blessing to those who would bless you, a life full of blessing, and a land that in later books of the Bible we're going to see is flowing with milk and honey. 
I mean, I'm not into milk, but some people tell me that it's great. There's this sense in which God has intervened in the spiral of sin and promised something incredible, and yet Genesis is still full of mess. People who are pretty awful, to be honest, and a life of lived that seems pretty tragic. If you were going to write a family history about how God promised to bring you out, Genesis is not the book I would be writing. And yet, that's what we have. Abraham, doubting the promises of God, sleeps with a slave instead of holding firm that God might bring him a child. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, playing favorites with the twins and and causing chaos in what might be God's promises going forward. And now Jacob, we see him in a bit of a mess tonight, accidentally marrying the wrong woman. Oh, no. But even prior to that, he's kind of a slimy dirtbag stealing the, the inheritance and blessing from his brother. His name means deceiver, and he's shown it again and again. And yet, God is faithful. God is faithful. The chapter prior, chapter 28, you look at verse 14. God speaking to Jacob says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring." I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Let me translate for you. Jacob, even though you've stuffed it up royally in so many ways, I'm still faithful. My promises are still true. But what I find interesting is God says to him, I am with you and will watch over you. If you got that promise verbally from God, you would be feeling like, I don't know what's coming next, but I can handle it. And yet, chapter 29, we see Jacob get royally stitched up, right? Like, don't gloss over this. He commits seven years of hard labor with no wage. His wage is the girl of his dreams. And at the end of seven years hard labor, there was Leah, right? Like, we, we can laugh at that, but it's kind of tragic, to give over seven years of your life and to just watch it vanish into the air. You can imagine him being pretty frustrated. But didn't God say, I will be with you and watch over you? I wonder if that's the question you and I ask sometimes. We have incredible promises of God filling the pages of our Bible. We think, God, you are here. You are with me. You love me. And then we start to live and the wind and the waves and the storms of this world threaten to topple us. And we question, God, where are you? Well, God shows us here in Genesis that His faithfulness to us is not to provide comfort or a comfortable life, I should say. Not to smooth the waters so that we can sail through seamlessly into heaven, but He says, I am with you. So that as you threaten to topple, you will never have a question of the one who is standing there beside you, the one who is holding on to you. And the one who, yes, will make sure every single one of his promises is yes and amen in Jesus. Because we aren't aiming low for a nice, comfortable life here on earth. We're looking to eternity of joy. And that is what God promises us. Jacob doesn't quite get that. His life starts to unravel in 29. Sometimes you and I, we're the same. But we're not here to talk about Jacob because we learn something incredible about God when we look at Leah. We're introduced to her... Primarily in verse 17, it's a little weird one, you can see it in your Bibles, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel 
had a lovely figure and was beautiful. I don't think this is a comment on her, like, optometry. I think she might have been able to see just fine. It's what we call an idiom. If I was to say, I'm just pulling your leg, you're not going to expect me to come over and start tickling you. You know, like, it's, that's, that would be weird. Pulling your leg, I'm just telling you a joke. We have these phrases. Leah was weak on the eyes, but Rachel was lovely and had a beautiful figure. Leah was weak on the eyes. She wasn't really very nice to look at. She, was, she wasn't particularly good looking. She was probably ugly, if we could say those words, right? Like, that's kind of what he's trying to get at. But Rachel, lovely to look at. Beautiful, lovely figure. Immediately, the introduction that we're given to Leah is in a society in which a, woman, a woman's primary value in the household was to acquire a husband and to produce sons. She's immediately at a loss because she's not very nice to look at. That's strike one against Leah, right? Things that are not looking good for her. Then you look at the way her father treats her. Now, whether or not she is complicit in this deception, I'm not too sure. The text doesn't seem to think that she is, and her father certainly had sway over her life. But her father thought so little of Leah's ability to find a husband that he figured the only way I can get this woman out of my household would be to trick someone. And Jacob comes along at just the right time. This is perfect. You know what? He's so in love with Rachel that he'll just be absolutely blind right to the very moment where he wakes up having realized he slept with the wrong woman. You might be questioning, how in the world could you sleep with the wrong woman? I would imagine copious amounts of alcohol and other (laughs) substances that may have their effect upon you. That's not commented on at all. What we need to see here is that Leah is not only weak-eyed, but she's thought so little of by her dad, the one who's supposed to protect her, cherish her, and love her, that he would lead her into this situation in which, verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. It's funny, right? It's also tragic. Tragic that this woman would be treated in that way. She's not only unwanted by her father. She's not only weak-eyed, but she's, she's unwanted by Jacob right from the beginning. Everyone knows that Jacob's eyes are only for Rachel. Can you imagine the, the morning after your wedding night? The wedding of your dreams, right? Like that's, that's what we long for in so much of our society is that we would find the love of our life and we would join ourselves together and you have this spectacular moment. We pay photographers to make sure it looks beautiful. Leah's story, a little different. She wakes up, verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah, and immediately Jacob is speaking to her father. He's just upset that the wrong girl's in his bed. Leah's not stupid. She's, she's sitting there going, I know I'm second best. I know I'm not even wanted at this point. I've just been thrown into this situation. He just wants Rachel. He doesn't want me. There's no explanations. There's no... No sense of, okay, Leah, this is not a great situation, but we're going to make the most of it. Let me get a... There's nothing. There's simply Jacob coming over to Laban. What is this you have done to me? As if Leah was the curse upon his life. And, and you know, he probably thought it was. Can you imagine hearing those words? Or at least watching that come about? You're now married to this man. You're going to be leaving your father's house, and you're going to be living with this man in his household shortly, and he had no desire to bring you into his household. You are trapped. 
perhaps the one weird but, but, but nice glimpse of light in all of this is that Leah at least will get to be with Rachel, right? Her, her younger sister. You've got this, this, this weird exchange where Jacob, uh, Laban says to Jacob, okay, okay, we had a custom. The older goes before the younger. I probably could have told you seven years ago, but hey, here we are. But okay, here's the other one. You can marry her now. We'll give you, you know, lay by, give it up front, after pay. Here she is. But now you've got to give me another seven years, okay? Now you've got to make sure that you... So, so at this moment, we've got Jacob married to Leah as well as to Rachel. And it's, I want to make it very clear. Rachel is just as much a victim in this situation as Leah. She loved Jacob. Jacob loved her. And yet now she's stuck in this triangle with her sister. You know, it's messy. Genesis is messy. Our lives are messy. And yet, there is no sisterly love or affection toward Leah. We're not blaming Rachel. She's been through some stuff. But just put yourself in the shoes of Leah. Weak-eyed, unloved and unwanted by her father, unloved and unwanted by her now husband, and married and in the same household with her sister. And verse 1 of chapter 30, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. You come down to verse 7, and the way she speaks about her is, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. My sister is now an enemy to be conquered, not a sister to be loved. And then you got the weird stuff about the mandrakes. Can we just talk about the mandrakes? That's like, where they just, they've, trans, they've reduced their life together as a transaction of who gets to sleep with the, the, the husband at the right time. It, you know, it's this whole thing of like, oh, give me the mandrakes. No, you can have the mandrakes, and only if you let me sleep. It's just awful. It's just messy. Now, you might be thinking, well, Genesis is 4,000 years ago. It's a completely different culture. You're, you're right. But can you see what Leah has been through? Can you see how she must feel? Well, we don't need to speculate because it's made very clear to us. Chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, it's clear as day. All of these factors contributed to it. But at the end of the day, this woman is lonely, unloved, loveless, broken, without much hope for the future. And yet, the Lord is there. He's in her life. He's with her. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. Now, you might immediately be going, that's the solution to this situation? Childbearing? Is she a cow? to be utilized for her child, suspend your judgment, again, very different culture. Leah likely, the, the desire of her heart was to have children because that was her role in society, in her household. And in fact, she thinks that this is the answer to her problems, as we'll see in a moment. More than this, though, we see something beautiful in the book of Genesis where the God who in Genesis 1 brought order out of chaos, brought something out of nothing, He is the God who brings flourishing out of barrenness. And so the Lord is the one who intervenes in this moment to bring flourishing into Leah's life. Now, Leah misunderstands what that means. She is looking to be loved because she is so unloved, but she's looking in all the wrong places. You have a look, chapter, th- uh, sorry, chapter 29, verse 32. After the Lord made her conceive, enabled her to conceive, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, 
For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. You see that? Finally, this is it. Maybe I won't be so unloved anymore. Maybe Jacob will notice me. Maybe this whole incident was actually a positive because finally someone will see me and know me and love me. Did you notice that word misery? She said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. That word's the same word used to describe the slaves in Egypt and the oppression that they experienced from their masters. This is the depth of her pain, and she thinks she can find the answer to her lovelessness in a man. But it doesn't work. She has a baby, and yet, verse 33, she conceives again. It's not an immediate process. This takes time, and she gives birth to a son again named Simeon. And you see that she says, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved. Even after going through the first birth and all this pregnancy, she's still not loved. Maybe third time's the charm, verse 34. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Again, all this time has passed once more, and she's still just craving her husband to look at her, to offer her the affection that she desires in her life. Maybe fourth time's the charm. What is? Because she realizes the mistake she's made. We're not sure why, we're not sure how. Verse 35, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, means praise. Then she stopped having children. She stopped looking outward for the emptiness inside of her. She looked, stopped looking for the, the solution to her brokenness in another human or in worldly circumstances and she began to see the God who was present in her life and just simply said, God, I will praise you. It's beautiful. He didn't fix the problem. God didn't fix the problem. I want you to feel this. Sometimes God doesn't fix the brokenness in our lives. She's still loveless, and yet God is enough. Yet God is enough. He doesn't stop intervening in her life until she gets it. We get four children deep before she finally works it out. But God is there and God is for her. Psalm 63, your life, sorry, your love is better than life. Maybe we're looking for the wrong answer to our prayers. Maybe in our pain, God is doing something more important than fixing our problems. And I don't say that to be dismissive. Our problems can be huge. And yet the love of God is the greatest reality that we could possibly ever have. That might be what he's doing. There's a woman named Vanitha who wrote an article on this chapter because it really defined her life. It describes her sort of over a decade journey where it began with a woman who thought she was being kind but actually was being awful when she said, hey, Vanitha, you're a Leah. She's like, hold on a minute. What do you mean? She says, well, you're unloved, but you're kind of noble about it. Isn't that the most backhanded compliment ever? You're just such an unlovable person, but good on you for being noble about it. It was fuel for her fire. She, she was longing for love. She says that she was longing for a husband specifically. And in that wrestle was where she found the love of God in truth. Let me read her, her story. She writes, I thought of God primarily in relation to my past or my future. I was grateful that Christ died for my sins, happy that I'd committed my life to Him. And I was looking forward to heaven, where I'd go to spend eternity with my Savior. But 
And this is an important, but I needed him in the present too. But my day-to-day relationship with God was frequently more theoretical than personal. At first, I felt God's love was not quite as good as having a husband who loved me. But sitting with God day after day, I realized his love and attentiveness were not second best. They were better than the love of any man. Not having the love of a husband pushed me into depending on the love of God to sustain me. Since I had never had to depend on God for everything before, I had never expected him to be everything. Maybe that's what God's doing in us. We've never had to depend upon God being everything when we do, maybe He is everything that we long for. Turn with me to that reading that Jude read, Ephesians chapter 3. It's the prayer that Paul makes for the Ephesian church, and it's all about the love of God in Christ. Now, there's plenty of places in the New Testament where we're taught about the love of God, but Paul is not teaching about it. He's praying that the people of God might have an experience of it, because we don't just need the facts of God. We need the experience of God. We need to know in the biblical sense, not just in our heads, but in our souls, that we are loved by God. And so he prays, verse 18, that we may have power. And what's the power for? That we might just have some sense of how incredible God's love is. We might just get some sense that it is wider and higher and broader and longer than we ever dreamed. That the love of God is, is perhaps enough, even in our emptiness, even in our brokenness, even in our situation. He says, verse 17, he prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And in verse 19, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That these truths and theology that we believe about the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us and being with us for our entire existence, that we might not just know it, but that we might experience it. That the infinite, eternal, divine one lives within us because he loves us. He loves you. There is no more important truth. I've been a Christian for 16 years now, and being a believer has not taken away my wrestles with anxiety, loneliness, fractured friendships, inner failures, disappointed hopes, or difficulties in life. I still wrestle to this day. Past two years, hardest two years of my life. And yet, that is the place of the most maturity in my Christian faith. God doesn't promise perfection. His love is not to remove these trials, but to do something in these trials. And I still feel like a mess. But I can say that I have realized again and again that I am not standing on shaky ground. I'm standing on the unshakable foundation of Jesus Christ. I have tasted the unwavering affection that God has for me that cannot be polluted by my failure and my sin. It's always enough. And I have noticed the immovable presence of God that He truly will never leave me or forsake me. I can run away as far as I want. God promises that He'll be there, and I've tasted that. And I I think that that's what God's doing in my life. Sure, I hope that life gets easier, but if that's what God's doing, that's what God's doing. Let me wrap up by reading slowly some some verses from Romans 8, easily the best chapter of the Bible. 
Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not a call to do anything other than to look and see how much God loves you. And it's enough. It truly is enough. Now, today is Invitation Sunday. You might have noticed some cards on your pew. We just take a time, once a term, once a series, just to give us an opportunity to recommit ourselves to the love of God. So, there's a prayer that's going to jump up on the screen. I might invite the band up if they wouldn't mind jumping up. They might play in the background in a moment. The prayer that's going to jump up on the screen, I'm just going to pray it really slowly. And if this captures anything of the commitment you want to make in the love of God, just say amen at the end. So, we'll pull that up. Dear God, thank you for creating me to love and to be loved. Thank you for your extraordinary love for me. Thank you that Jesus loved me enough to die in my place. Sorry that I have rejected your love, questioned your love, sought love in the things of this world. Please forgive me. Please come into my life. Please help me to live from this day forward knowing that I am loved by you. In the name of Jesus, my Lord and my Savior.